This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast, friends. I'm Erica, and I'm so glad you're here today. My guest today is Stephanie Lobdell. She's a pastor, mom, and author of a new book, Signs of Life, Resurrection Hope from Ordinary Losses. In today's conversation, we talk about Stephanie's journey to becoming a pastor, her walk through depression, and how God led her into writing. I got pretty honest in asking her about a few things that I struggle with as a Christian, like what do we do when we don't actually feel free in Christ, and what does it mean? I appreciated Stephanie's wisdom and honesty in her answers and came away with a real appreciation for the sign that God the signs that God gives us when he is working and restoring new life each and every day in our hearts through every circumstance. This episode is a real dose of wisdom and I know you're going to walk away with a word from the Lord. Enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Lobdell. everyone. Well, today on the podcast, we have Stephanie Lobdell. She is a pastor, an author, a mom. And so Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I listed off a couple of things that sort of describe you in short, but I would love if you could expand on those. Tell us a little bit more about what those things are in your life and who you are. Yeah, totally. So um, my husband and I were actually co-lead pastors um, just in local churches for 10 and a half years. We shared the office of senior pastor for um, in those two places and just preached and taught and did all the things. And then a year ago, I was um, asked to apply uh, for a different position as a campus pastor of a university. And um, we lived through a long period of discernment. And as of July, I am now the chaplain or the campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University in Ohio. So that is a significant life shift right there. Uh, I got two kids. I got a seven-year-old daughter named Jojo and a three-and-a-half-year-old son named Jack. Okay. Yeah. Um, Did you always know that you wanted to be a pastor or a church leader in that way? Uh, No, I did not. Um, I was super ambitious and a little snot, I think, pretty much in eighth grade. I was like, I'm going to be president. I'm going to be all the things, (laughs) like super mega achiever, you know. And that summer um, was when the Lord um, just invited me into a lifelong pursuit of a Christian vocation. And at the time, I specifically thought that was going to be through missions. I was going to be a missionary. Um, and for a lot of reasons, I think, looking back at that, I do have some you know, gifts and graces and passion for you know, cross-cultural ministry. But really, that was the primary role I had seen um, women serve in was as missionaries or children's pastors. And I was not a fan of kids, so knew that wasn't my path. Um, but was very interested in cross-cultural ministry, and that's where I'd seen women thrive. So I thought, oh, that's obviously what this is. Um, and over many years of discernment and serving in the church and serving overseas, um, uh, did the Lord make clear that actually I've, I've made you for this particular this particular thing of this uh, of shepherding um, and preaching the proclaimed word. So, so are you preaching like every Sunday? No. See, in, in a university, it's a Christian university. We have required, actually, spiritual formation credit. So they attend chapel. They do small groups, service teams, stuff like that. We have chapel three times a week. 
So I got three Sundays. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I don't preach every time. Obviously, I bring in different speakers and we have student testimonies and interactive worship services. Um, but I preach at least once a month, but oftentimes more than that, just depends on the circumstance. Um, but I am in charge of coordinating those services and making sure they run smoothly and um, getting speakers and different things like that. So, yeah. Um, I've never really talked to anyone about preaching specifically, but I always yeah. think of it as kind of like, you got to do a new TED talk every week, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, how much time do you put into preparing for something like that? And does oh. it get easier? Does it start to take less time as you, you know, get more used to it? Yeah. I feel like every time I have to write a sermon, I think to myself, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> every time, every time. And then I, and then I start writing and then I start reading and I start engaging and I think, nope, this is what I've done. This is how I do this. I was made to do this thing. And those things start coming back in, but it is a very intimidating thing to face the text every week. When I was a local church pastor to face the text every week and say, what is the word of God for the people of God right now? Um, and my husband and I would often alternate or we would do, you know, six weeks at a time here and there. Um, but that was a very intimidating thing. And so now here in this context where I am preaching to college students, um, some of which are believers, um, uh, most of which are, but many are not, um, and preaching on specific themes and whatever, I spend a lot more time in studying um, more broadly because I have more time to do that since I'm not preaching every Sunday. I do a lot of reading and preparation, but my outlines are still the same. I still use like 15 colored pens to draw a little <laughs> sermon map, you know, and, uh, and then I... And I bring the word. So as the spirit empowers me to do that. And I truly feel alive when I am able to do that. And where did you say you guys live? We live in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Oh, okay. So how far away is that from Indianapolis? About four hours. Okay. That's where I live. So okay, there we're, you not, go. we're not too far away, really. High five. Yeah, yeah, totally. Are you from Ohio originally? Oh, no. I've never... I've been this far east, like for trips, but I've never lived this far east. I was um, lived a lot of places as a kid, but grew up mostly Midwest. And the last four and a half years, we lived in Idaho. We were out west, uh, loved out west. It was a wonderful place. It was a very healing time in our ministry, um, and just a beautiful part of the country. Um, so I've had to grieve that a bit. Like Ohio is beautiful in a lot of different ways. Beautiful fall colors right now. Yeah, totally. But there are no mountains. The other day it was cloudy, and my three-year-old said. Mom, it's so cloudy, I can't even see the mountains. And I was like, oh, sweetie. Oh, imagination right there. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> yep. Yeah, my husband is from Arizona, so he often mourns the loss of the mountains in his life and really misses that. Um, but yes, autumn, fall is definitely the best time, at least I think, the best time in the Midwest, in oh. the Indiana, Ohio area. I love it so much. Um, it's just, I wish it lasted longer. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm dreading that. So. Well, so you talked about, you know, the beginning of the sermon process. Sometimes it uh -huh. feels like, what am I doing or how am I ever going to do this? And I feel like that a lot when I'm starting a new writing project. And yes. one of the things I want to talk Same. with you today about is your book that just came out. Uh, it's yeah. called Signs of Life, Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses. And it has a beautiful cover. I saw the cover. I don't have a copy yet, but um, I love the artwork on it. Um, and I, let's talk about that. Where did that yeah. book come from? And oh my word. did you feel that way when you started writing it as well? Well, this is the thing. So, um, I'll tell a little bit of intro of how I even started writing. So I'd written, um, curriculum and stuff like that for my denomination, but hadn't done a lot of um, creative nonfiction um, is kind of the genre that I find myself in. So it's nonfiction. It's like true story, like actual things, um, not novel type things, but creative in the sense of you're weaving together different things. It's not like a, like an encyclopedia. So creative nonfiction. Um, but 
Um, I went through a season of depression, which is a significant, significant part of my own personal journey, um, mental health. And, um, I went through this pretty kind of dramatic treatment and, uh, called TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation. And during that time, um, my church just came alongside me in a very special way. They set up a meal train. They brought meals to our house every day, and they just cared for me in some really meaningful ways. And afterwards, I wrote, um, basically, I wrote a love letter to the church. We'd been there two years, and I just wrote this love letter expressing to them my gratitude for their care and how they had been a means of grace to me. And I just posted it on Facebook, and a couple friends, I said, would you? Like it had been getting traction, which was weird. And so I was like, would you mind like sharing this? And I just, I'm kind of curious to see what God might do here. So we shared it. And um, someone from one of the branches of Christianity today reached out to me, an editor and said, would you consider writing for me? And I was like, okay. That's amazing. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but okay. So I started, she's like, I want you to submit some queries. I'm like, cool. What's a query? Um, <laughs> That's like a writer's dream to have someone I from know, Christianity today was, reach out to them. It was insane. So, um, so I started, I Googled query. Yeah. Like you do, like you do. And just started writing some articles about my own experience as a woman in ministry. I started writing from Christianity today a little bit for CT Pat pastors, women leaders, um, Missio Alliance, stuff like that. And then in December, so that was like in April. December of, of that what year. year. Yeah. Of what year uh, was this? 2017. Okay, so not that long ago. April 2017. Uh, December of 2017, I get an email from an editor at a publishing house saying, hey, I've read some of your stuff, and I think there might be a book in you. Can we talk? And I was like, sorry, I think you have the wrong email address. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't know if that's the thing, but I said, okay, why don't we have a conversation? And, um, she said, is there any book project you have in mind? And I said, not, no, not really. But I, there's there's some themes that I feel like the Lord is kind of keeps bringing up in my life that I kind of would like to, why don't you explore that over the holiday? And, and we'll talk again in January. So I just began to reflect on what God had been doing in me the past decade of pastoral ministry and realized this theme of resurrection had been so central to my story. We had been through, um, we had been baby pastors, just little baby pastors. We'd been there just a year and a half and had this nasty church conflict. And um, we're a leader in our church, like our denomination came and was helping us navigate it. Um, and he said at the end of this kind of everybody telling their side of the story type thing. And I was really hoping he was going to just hammer him and he did not do that. And then I was, he should have probably like, scolded us, but he did not do that either. And he said, well, what we have to ask now is, is the resurrection enough to bring us forward to a new place in this relationship? And at the time, the question did not make any sense to me. Like, what does the resurrection have to do with this Um, at all? You know, this is September. Uh, We talk about resurrection at Easter. (laughs) Um, And so I began to explore over the course through my seminary career and just through the course of my own ministry as what does the resurrection have to say to my ordinary life? Like, is it just about getting my slate wiped clean and just making it into heaven someday? Or is the resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, actually at work in our lives right now? And not just in the big stuff. And this is what's kind of unique about my book is that it's not about some cancer diagnosis I survived. It's not about a series of miscarriages. It's not about a divorce or a you know chronic pain. I mean, it's about just ordinary stuff. It's about the death of the future that I thought I was going to have and got disrupted. It was a the the death of the expectations I had for my vocation as a woman in ministry and how those were um, kind of unsettled by misogyny and the death of of um, plans that I had made. The death of of beauty it talks about body image. I mean, just basic stuff that nobody writes home about, and yet they are wounds that affect us deeply. And so my question was, does, what does the resurrection have to say to this? So I presented it to the, this editor and I said, I have this concept of these ordinary deaths 
And I want to weave them together with narratives of scripture. So like the death of zeal is kind of my period of deconstruction in college. I want to interweave that with a story of Saul on the road to Damascus and how he was so zealous for God and yet it was pointed in the wrong direction. And so I wrote out a book proposal because I had to Google that too and um, presented it to them and they accepted and offered me that book contract um, like March or April of that next year. So started writing and had a book deal within a year. That That's is amazing. That is um, can I ask you, uh, you, you kind of zipped by like several things that you mentioned about your expectations and things. Yeah. Is there any, yeah. is there anything you could expand on that you wrote about that, just as more of an example of the kind of thing that you're talking totally. about? Yeah. So one of the expectations in particular. So, um, I think I've already kind of communicated this, but I was very much oriented around being a very high achieving student and just person in general. I did really well in school. I did really well in college um, and in seminary in my own way. You know, you find your kind of your niche and then you kind of dig into that. Um, I'd always done really well. And my professors had always been extremely affirming of my gifts and graces for ministry. Um, my professors would even say, like he brought me into his office once. He's like, you know, about 10% of our students were like, yeah, we I don't know if you're going to make or I can't remember what he said. It was like 70% of our students were like, yeah, we're pretty sure you're going to make it, but we're not entirely sure. 10% of them, we kind of wish they would have gone somewhere else. And about 20 of them were like, they are winners. They're they're going to do good work. And he's like, that's where you are. You know, just like that kind of affirming stuff. Right. And then I get into the parish and um, I'm actually serving in a church. And that's a, kind of a story about how we came to become co-pastors. But I get into a church and realize the the mantle of pastor that was so freely given to my husband without reserve, even though he actually wasn't even in seminary yet. I was the one had was in seminary, had more education at that point. The mantle of pastor that was so freely bestowed upon him, I had to earn in a way that he did not. Um, for a year, I was at one church, we were at the one church for six years. And when I left, people were still calling me at, on occasion, calling me the pastor's wife. Mm. And um, I can't tell you how hard that was. It was extremely painful. And it wasn't uh, because your, I mean, your church denomination obviously stands yeah, they behind women in ministry. Female, yeah. yeah but, but you know, every congregation has a unique culture, and this was a very rural one, and had some influences of fundamentalism, and um, and a lot of churches say, yeah, we affirm women in ministry, but mm, probably not the right fit for us. You know, that's always the narrative. And so often the narrative is that that's great. We believe in that. But, you know, our congregation's just different. You know, that's that's this the line. Um, and so I had these expectations that I was going to be received so well and embraced with my gifts and graces. And I think was probably a, a bit of a arrogant, uh, arrogance in me as well that needed to be, you know, convicted and healed and all the things. But um but also these expectations I have of being received so freely into ministry. And then even when we transitioned to a different place that was incredibly affirming and so gracious to me, other leaders um, in the denomination weren't. They um, had a, a meeting for all these young millennial pastors and it was sent to my husband and I. And um, it was like, hey, guys, come on over to this meeting, da, 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 da. And so I just emailed to confirm like, hey, you know, not being snarky, just said you said guys. And so I want to make sure I was invited. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, you, 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 you aren't. Why? I'm sorry, what? Um, It was, uh, he felt that um, women or men needed more help balancing home life and ministry life. And at the time, I was six months pregnant with my second child. I had dinner in the crock pot. I had a midwife appointment that afternoon. And I had like three Advent sermons to write. And I was like, I don't even know what to say to you. And so that just, there were moments where I had these expectations that I was going to be received and affirmed. And I was by, by a lot of people. They were loved. They loved me and they affirmed me. But oftentimes I felt like I needed to earn that um, in a way my husband did not. 
and there were times where people that I really trusted um, did things like that. <laughs> and then you just feel like my expectations have just been shredded. Um, and the story of, I, I tell the story of, of Anna. She's married for seven years and she's made um, a widow at seven years. And uh, she spends all of her time prophesying and praying in the temple. And she and Simeon are the first to encounter the Christ child. And she is the first one to actually go and end up proclaiming his story. But like her expectations were to be a Jewish wife and mother. And that was stripped away from her when her husband died. And then she comes into the temple and discovers this vocation and lives into that and is able to be this prophet of the Lord. And so I have these expectations of what I thought my life was going to look like in my ministry. And they just are shredded. And yet... God calls me into this new space, um, continually affirms me and everything that I thought was going to look a certain way, it hasn't looked that way. Um, but I feel more affirmed in my call. I feel, um, more convinced than ever, regardless of what anybody says that, that God made me for this particular vocation. Um, and I'm going to do that. So regardless of, of the, the critique and the feedback, like sometimes that's hard. I even get it sometimes now from students. Um, always anonymous because, you know, that's how you go. Um, <laughs> this is who I was made to be, and I'm going to be faithful to that call. And um, those expectations, they were probably had some, rooted in some pride and some, I'm so awesome and I can do all the things. Um, and the Lord needed to to strip those away from me and allow my vocation to be rooted in his provision, his call, um, and God's um, divine work in my life. So that's just one example of how these expectations I had, had they died. They were just, they were, frankly, they were murdered. Yeah. <laughs> um, but God resurrected something far superior, far more faithful in my life um, through just his presence and his grace and his persistent pursuit of me and invitation into ministry in a multitude of ways. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that and, you know, about God being present and about how the resurrection matters on a daily basis and these little things. So, you know, one of the big problems that like basically everyone has is that we base too much on our emotions and how everything mm -hmm. feels um, when it feels yeah. like God isn't there. And, and I do that probably worse than most people, unfortunately. Yeah. And so I guess my question for you is, how do we stop and recognize that God is there in the midst of that, yeah. in the midst of when it feels like our expectations or our dreams have died? Um, yeah. And just capture that in the moment without kind of feeling completely deflated. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, I can certainly resonate with that experience. Um, like I, I've already mentioned, one of my chapters is called The Death of Future, and it was about my um, original diagnosis of depression. And I felt like that immediately right there was going to disqualify me from any kind of ministry. And God had to um, resurrect that call in me in the midst of this diagnosis. I've not been healed of it. I continue to wrestle with that. Um, so I resonate with that experience of your emotions are not always trustworthy. Even my thoughts and my mind sometimes is not trustworthy um, because of that struggle. Um, but that's kind of where the, t the, the sign, the, the title signs of life came from is this, you're not, I imagined, I think um, just marching on, I think in the text I say, from victory to victory and like my path just being littered with these beautiful, you know, flowers and of um, indicators of, of success and of glory and all of God's goodness in my life. When reality, oftentimes uh, faithfulness feels a lot like March. You know, March technically is spring, mm. but there aren't leaves yet. All we mm -hmm. see are these dry sticks 
And that slowly, and we've even forgotten like, oh, this tree can't even bear fruit anymore. Like everything is dead. We will eternally live in this barren wasteland. Like that's how I am around March. So don't hang out with me in March. <laughs> me too. But then you look at the trees and you see all of a sudden, uh, you start to see these little bumps and all the next day they become buds and they begin to crack open. And the thing is, if you go and you open that bud, it destroys the life that's inside it. Um, but what has felt like death the whole time, all this winter, what has felt like death um, is what Barbara Brown Taylor says was actually a womb, mm. was actually a place where God was was creating and just um, gestating new life. Um, and so I just cling to that image of that of that March branch saying, where are the signs? Where are the signs of life? Like I am not delivered. I am not delivered of depression. I still continue to wrestle with my mental health and have to continue working on that and seeking help and support. Um, but I have found so many means of grace along the way, sometimes through medication, sometimes through treatment, sometimes through, you know, casserole. I think Rachel Held Evans called it the, uh, the sacrament of the chicken casserole. Um, the places where I've experienced <laughs> God's intervention in my life, to me, those are signs of life. Those are signs I have not been abandoned um, and that new life is on the horizon. Uh, some new life I will confess we will not see this side of eternity. Some things will not be healed and restored and made new um, until Christ returns in his glory. But there are signs that are breaking out among us if we have eyes to see. I just saw this quote and I posted it the other day on Instagram from Christine Kane. That's like the same thing that you just said, which was sometimes when you think you've been buried, you've actually been planted. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh that's so powerful <laughs> to think about yeah. like when you're in the dark and it feels so overwhelmingly like death and really mm -hmm. it's just new life, like the womb image that yeah. you were talking about. I think that mm -hmm. is so powerful. And I love, you know, I know it is the title of your book, but it kind of just hit me when you were saying it. Um about signs of life, like really like look for a sign, like stop. It doesn't have to be like all of the sudden you feel better, but where, mm -hmm. you know, God is not going to leave you with nothing, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think one, one little thing, like you said, like, um, <clears throat> recognizing, you know, what, what thing can you recognize that like, oh, that has potential for a future and that has yeah. the hope. Um, yeah. so I think that's I think really powerful. I think we also need to expand our imagination a little bit about what God's um, intervention and presence in our life looks like. I think oftentimes we imagine um, God's presence looks like a specific outcome or God's presence looks like, you know, a specific verse that just came to me in this particular way. And oftentimes that is the case. I, for one, have leaned heavily into the Psalms, particularly the lament Psalms. But I think we need to expand our imagination to understand that God's grace comes to us in sometimes the most ordinary of ways. I'm from a Wesleyan tradition and we talk about the ordinary means of grace. And there are those, those things of God's, um, ways of reaching us, coming to us that are maybe um, not what we expected. Maybe it's not you experience God so profoundly as you receive Eucharist on Sunday, but maybe you experience God's grace over a cup of coffee with a friend who finally hears you and sees you and doesn't try to judge you or change you, but says, I see you, friend, and I'm sorry that you're hurting. And in that moment of empathy, when you are seen, um, perhaps that's God coming to us and saying, I see you through through your sister in Christ. I, I see you. You are seen. You are not forgotten. And so I think if sometimes if we expanded our imagination, we would see far more signs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the depression stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to ask, how do you, how do you describe how depression feels for you and how is it different than sadness? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for me, um, depression is different than sadness in that um, it's persistence over a period of time. Um, and also with sadness, 
it's easy to to name exactly. Um, it's usually easier to name what I'm sad about. Um, but depression sometimes feels very amorphous. It's does not necessarily a specific thing, but more like a dark cloud that um, that just consumes more a fog that consumes my entire life. And um, the future seems very un- unclear. Um, I can't see nothing. Nothing seems worthwhile. Nothing seems worth the energy. Um, nothing seems meaningful. There is no nothing to look forward to. Um, but like the physical metaphor that I use, and I even describe it in the book, is that um, I felt like when I was first diagnosed, um, I felt like I was running in a pool and that it began to fill with water. And I kind of could high step it for a while, but then I was like trying to run in just chest deep water. And technically you can do that thing, but only for a little while before everything gives out. You know, you have nothing left. And so basic daily tasks became much more difficult. I had a sense of hopelessness that persisted over time. Um, and just a sense of, uh, of general despair, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and numbness to, to joy. And what was the treatment that you mentioned earlier that you said you had? Yeah. So before I, I said, I, I had been on medication for many, many years. I was, I put on medication in 2005, um, and I did not participate in this other treatment until 2016. Uh, I'd failed on four or five different medications. So they would work for a season, a couple years maybe. Um, and then they would just stop working and I'd find myself back in this pit. And I went to this counselor. This was such a funny story. Well, fu- not, it's funny now. It was not funny then. I went to this counselor who was just, she was not a good counselor. She was like, I think you just need to take some breaths. I'm like, I think you need to go jump out that window. Like, <laughs> she just was not a very perceptive counselor. But in that experience, she encouraged me to take this thing called the PHQ-9, which measures basically your depression quotient, like on a scale of zero to 27. Mm-hmm. How much do you want to die? And <laughs> I was like, a, I was like a 19. Wow. And she said, um, you need to talk to them about this. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And basically, um, it's not ECT. It's not electric. It's this magnet. Um, they, they put this big helmet on you. They strap mm-hmm. you. And I describe it very vividly in the book. And it's unsettling to some people, which I felt bad about. But it is what it is. Um, you strap in and then, um, they, this magnet sends pulses to specific parts of the brain. They believe targets, um, hmm. depression. It kind of reawakens parts that are not doing what they're supposed to do. And through muscle memory, through a series of treatments that are repeated over time, 36 is the typical course of treatment, 36 treatments. Um, it's muscle memory, training your brain to go back to this place, this place of health, this place of whatever. Um, and it was, utterly transformative for me. I've done it several times wow. where I've done like a touch up, like, Oh, I'm going to come in with five. I'm going to do five, kind of get knocked back into place. And then this past, past January, February, I did another full set. I had a couple events kind of had uh, tri- kind of triggered me into a pretty, pretty scary place. And so, um, went ahead and did a full set, uh, this January, February, and that's been, and good. And it's been able to me, I still take some medicine for um, anxiety. That particular treatment was not effective for me for treatments for anxiety. Um, but I was able to get off the depressive meds, which was helpful because the side effects were just getting r- 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 ramping up yeah. and it was becoming, um, it was becoming problematic for me. And so, um, it's been a gift that I don't have to take that right now. Um, so I don't feel like I personally struggle with depression, um, like long period depression, maybe sometimes episodic depression, but I have, I have had it in the past, um, and anxiety. And one of the things that I struggle with, and I think maybe others do is feeling that as a Christian, we're supposed to be free in Christ. This is something I've, I've dealt with recently with something. And I, it's not that I'm ever going to say, oh, well, I'm not really a Christian, you know, because I don't feel free, but I feel that I'm supposed to be free. You know, we're supposed to be free yeah. in Christ. And so how, what's your advice or thoughts yeah. on how you wrestle with that 
sitting here being like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be free. But yeah, yeah. here I am dealing with depression, anxiety, yeah. um, you know, addiction, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I, have two, I have two thoughts on that. The first one is y'all need to go read some lament Psalms because if you think that Christians don't and people of faith don't deal with tragedy and sadness and this feeling of I am stuck in the mire, then you need to go talk to David for a little while because he expressed that quite well. Um, but this is what I would say is that depression, um, is an anxiety and mental illness is, is, a, is, can be a combination of things, circumstantial, of course, but also there's a very significant biological component. For me, it's a significant part of my, um, my uh, medical history through my family. Um, and so for me, I know there is a significant biological component. So you would never say to a diabetic, if you just love Jesus, your pancreas would get into gear. Like if you really love Jesus and you were truly faithful, then you wouldn't need that insulin. Like we would never say that because that's insane. In the same way, I tell myself and I tell others, just because your brain doesn't produce the serotonin that it needs or because it doesn't pick up on these particular, you know, things that it needs to have because your brain doesn't operate in this specific way doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It means your brain needs help. In the same way diabetic needs insulin, I have needed medication. I have needed this particular treatment. I have needed specific types of therapy to teach my brain new patterns. Um, and those signs, those, those, the, you know, mental, this mental illness in particular, I'll just focus on my own struggle. Um, for me, are reminders that we still live in a fallen world and that down to the cellular level, we are marked by the powers of sin and death. And that even though Christ has come and Christ has died and Christ has been raised and the kingdom of God is breaking in among us and through us, we will not be fully healed and restored and made new until Christ returns and reigns in glory. And so at, until that time, we are still going to bear on our bodies and in our minds the marks of sin and death. And so I look at my brain and how it doesn't necessarily always work the way it should. And I just think one day. I will be fully healed and whole, but right now I am trusting that God is going to provide the grace that I need to continue moment by moment. All right. I like that answer. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned also that you are a proponent of the anti-hustle gospel, which <laughs> I thought that was interesting because obviously hustle is, you know, the big thing right now and it has oh been for God. a few years and yeah. um, we all want to get ahead and there was sort of like a plethora of books a couple years ago about kind of anti-hustle, like Sean and Equist, Present Over Perfect, and there's a couple other ones. But I have to say, I got a little annoyed with, um, not Sean and Equist herself, because I like her, but I was like, oh, it's easy for you to say uh, you're going to rest now that you have best-selling books, and you right. uh, are a successful speaker, and you've made a right. name for yourself. What about the rest of us that are trying to get there? We're still trying to make it. Exactly. Make it I know. So um, <laughs> talk to me about that, and how okay. do you strive for what you feel called to, um, but also not, you know, become a workaholic that's obsessed yeah. with it, I guess. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to confess to you that I am very much a, a hustler in recovery, um, in that, and that I do hustle and I, um, I know if you're into the Enneagram, but I have a very strong three in that I love to, and I come alive when I work and when I'm achieving and I'm striving after these things. But the problem for me has become when um, my sense of self and my identity and whether or not I'm worthy and lovable um, has become rooted in what I accomplish and what I achieve. 
Um, and so I want to be, I want to be measured and found faithful more than I want to be measured and found successful. And I say that, and I, I truly believe that, but sometimes my brain forgets to tell my heart and I still am flipping out about, Oh, how many Amazon reviews do I have on my book? Do I have what I need yet? And all those things. And it, 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 immediately pulls me into this anxious space of, well, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this and you need to achieve that so you can, you know, hustle your way. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't work hard. I'm saying that when it pulls me into that anxious space, I know that I'm, I am very close to idolatry. I'm very close to elevating who I think I should become and what I think I should be doing and what I think I should be achieving, elevating that over faithfulness to the call. Um, and so for me, I know that's, that's a sign that I'm getting close to, to, to unfaithfulness. So I want people to hear in my story, not that I didn't work hard because I did, but that, um, hard work doesn't save. It can't save. It can't heal. It can't restore. Um, it's only through Christ and his resting in our belovedness. So when you start feeling that, because I feel this a lot as someone who is, um, freelance writing, trying to pitch things, trying to make a name for myself in terms of in the writing world right now, specifically, um, I start to get very uh, emotional about it, like stressed out about it. And so it's in that moment where I start to think like, why am I doing this? And, and I'm, Mm -hmm. and I'm at a moment right now where I am kind of like making myself stop for a second because it's like, what are you doing? Like, this is not worth Mm -hmm. this feeling. And so, um, -hmm. I mean, is that, what do you recommend when that feeling starts to overtake? Yeah. Well, for me, it's not just like, it's the, it's the hustle and the achieving, but I also fall into some significant patterns of comparison of, well, that, you know, I'm not doing as good as her, so it doesn't count. Or, you know, for me, the finish line continually moves. And for me, realizing that, that the finish mm-hmm. line will continue to move and I will never achieve enough things or master that ultimate thing that it will be, it's going to make me okay. And I have to remind myself that on the daily, I wish that it was more natural, but it's not. And so I have to just accept that at this point that, um, no achievement's going to make me okay. And so when I find myself being pulled into that anxious space, like this happened a couple days ago, it was actually regarding my book. I reached out to a friend who I knew understood. She also had produced, um, I think she had produced an album actually. And I said, I just need you to pray for me right now because I'm being sucked into this anxious space of comparison and of feeling like I'm a failure because I haven't done X. Um, I need you to, to pray for me right now that the Lord would just send the spirit to protect my heart and whatever else and shift my focus away from that. So I, I reached out for support and prayer. Um, I also have had to discipline myself and say, okay, you're not going to check those things all the time. You don't need to check the sales of this. You don't need to check the, the whatever's of that. Um, and that's sometimes I do. And sometimes I'm disobedient and I pay the price for that. And then I feel anxious for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think also reassessing, you, you talked about, um, you were saying, why am I even doing this? I think that's an important question. Um, if we're doing it truly to make a name for ourselves, that is by definition idolatry. But if we're doing it because we feel like the Lord has invited us and has given us a word and there's something that we need to share and the Lord has, um, that we come alive when we're doing that thing, then I think we need to continue to pursue it. But if it's a, a practice that's, that's eliciting, you know, toxic behaviors and patterns and emotional experiences in us, then we need to reassess, uh, why we are doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> it's so true about the uh, it's never going to be enough because it's oh, like no. even the minute that, um, you know, your book is published, you're already in your head sort of thinking about like maybe you need to do another one at some point, you know. Oh, 
Oh my word. I thought my book launch day was gonna be this beautiful celebratory day. And it was so many people <laughs> celebrated me and sent me gifts and it was so wonderful. But in my heart, I felt like, oh, this, oh, this is it. I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's... I didn't feel the sense of I've climbed the mountain. I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that. And um, I was reminded once again, the finish line will move. And so stop rooting your okayness, rooting your sense of self and your sense of calling um, and worth in those external indicators. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about being a mom. You have two kids and I just think being a mom has just, it's so cliche to say it's changed your life. But I mean, I feel like I learned so much about God through my kids, um, specifically about, um, when I explain things to them, you know, when they mm. ask me a question, my son asked me, he's three and a half the other day, he asked me, oh. he's like, hey, mom, what's heaven? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have the privilege yeah. of like describing this to him. Right. Because, um, oh. you know, we had talked about heaven because talked about my grandma being there, yeah. but he had never stopped to ask like, well, what is that? And then at this moment he asked me and I, I got to kind of explain it to him. So what's something that you love about being a mom and mm-hmm. what do your kids teach you about God? Yeah. Um, my kids bring a lot of energy and joy. Um, and sometimes I will say sometimes that is a challenge and their energy and their just their vigor, because right now my job is extremely taxing and I'm still trying to like navigate that. I mean, I come home sometimes extremely drained, but, um, I love their joy at the simplest things. I love how much joy they had in carving a pumpkin this year. I love how much joy they had. They have in seeing like a leaf that's changed or the other day, my three-year-old son just looked at the sky and it was a really beautiful sunset and the sky was all pink and we were up on a hill and he goes, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and just seeing like their joy in the in the the simple things of life, um, how it's like excited they get when we say we're going to ice cream. Um, for me, oh man, that is so life giving to see things um, and experience their joy. Yeah, uh, through- I love that. Yeah, I love, I love that, that too. Um, but- oh, sorry, were you gonna keep going? No, okay, <laughs> I was gonna say I love asking people who are some of their role models and inspirations. Uh, who's somebody for you that you look up to in life? Um, one person that I would say I look up to, um, is my mom. Um, she, uh, was a stay-at-home mom. Also, she graduated from college, um, um, back in the eighties and then had me pretty soon after that. Um, she was, a, then she was a stay-at-home mom most of my life. She, um, went into the school a couple times as a pair or th- this and that, but most of the time was a stay-at-home mom, um, and loved it. And I think had a lot of, I mean, she was very involved in the church teaching Bible studies and, um, did really good faithful work. Um, but when we were all out of the house, she had filled out some little Facebook quiz and it was like, what would you do if you could do anything? And she said, I'd go back to school to be a teacher. And my dad called her on it and he said, is that, is that true? And she said, yeah, I think it is. And so, but she had been in school so long before, like so many decades prior that she actually had to go back and like redo some math classes, like in gen ed. And like, here she is, you know, with a mom, two kids at empty nest, you know, and she's going to these classes with these 18 year old punk kids, you know, but she persisted, even though it was extremely hard and then got into a master's program for education and has now been teaching for six or seven years. And I just look at her journey of how, um, she was faithful in every season she was in. And when the opportunity came, um, she walked through it with courage and now she is doing, it is so clear when you see her passion, um, and the way her students thrive, um, She's doing what God made her to do. Yes, she was made to be a mom, but she also was made to be a teacher. And watching her fulfill that vocation after so many years has been such a gift to watch. And I've been so incredibly proud of her. And I want to be that brave. That's really awesome. 
What's some advice that you would pass on to whether it be your kids or just people in general? Do you have anything? Mm. I don't know. I think I don't know if any one particular word of advice is a one size fits all. But I would say um, the faithful path is worth walking. Um, there are times when it is hard and there are times when um, when saying yes to the call, whether that be a vocational ministry call or to be a writer or to be a stay-at-home mom or whatever that my call might be. Um, if God's called you to do that thing, he's going to empower you to do that. It does not mean that it's going to be an easy path, um, but the call or the path of faithfulness is is worth is worth the, the heartache and it's worth the challenge um, because ultimately we land in this place of, getting these glimpses of God's faithfulness and reminders that, nope, we were made to do this thing. And when I'm doing what God has made me to do, um, I truly get to experience abundant life. Okay. And in the next five to 10 years, what's like a pers personal or professional goal that you have for yourself that you'd like to yeah. achieve? Yeah. Oh man. Touching on my temptations here. Um, <laughs> well, for cer certainly I would like to still be here. I want to still be at Mount Vernon. I want to, to be a campus pastor um, as long as the Lord would have me in this, in this space. And I want to invest in these students and I want them to look back at their time at Mount Vernon as truly transformative because of the um, classes and all the experiences, but also because they encountered God here. Um, and that's really very important to me. Um, I do want to continue to write. Um, I know the right answer would be to say, I'm going to write another book, but um, I'm not putting that pressure on myself. I am writing some other, some devotionals um, in partnership with some other people, but not a a book like this, not a non-creative or not a creative nonfiction book. I'm not going to put that pressure on myself at this moment because I recognize, I look back at my story and I say, God invited me to do this book. He gave me the particular thing that I was to write about. And instead of putting the pressure on myself to say, are you going to do it again? Are you going to do it again? But rather, I'm going to trust that uh, when the time is right, the Lord will invite me into that space again. And so I'm just breathing a little bit. I think that writing will continue to be a part of who I am and what I do. Um, but I'm not going to um, put that pressure on myself because I think that will put me into a toxic space. So uh, for right now, I just want to obey um, and be present where I am in this particular work and uh and see what comes. Okay. Now we talked about your book today, but I always want to know what are people reading? So are you, what are you reading? What's a book you could recommend? And do you have any podcasts that you like mm. as well? Yeah. Um, well, what I'm reading, I'm reading, already, always reading so many crazy things, um, mainly because of my job. Um, but so I just finished um, a, a Sean Smucker book is one of his novels, um, The Distance Between Two Stars or The Light Between Light between the stars. I can't remember the specific title, but that was that was really beautiful and very different than I expected. I'm also reading um, the new Jim Crow, which is not a cheerful read. It is a very <laughs> very hard read. Yeah. Um, but it is a necessary read. Um, and I am showing up for that. I'm showing up to that and um, learning from that. I also was recently reading a book called um, Let the Bones Dance: Embodiment in the Body of Christ, and it's just a book I was read. I recently preached about um, hospitality to our bodies, to our physical bodies. Mm. That comes out of one of my chapters, and so that was a resource talking a lot about um, the body, remembering, remembering, um, and how Christ meets us in our physical bodies. And so that was a challenging read. It's not a sit down cheerful read, but it is certainly a challenging read as well. Oh, that's interesting. That makes me want to read that chapter of your book for sure. Yeah, it's called The Death of Beauty. It's really <clears> true. <throat> All right. Well, I'm definitely going to get a copy of that. Um, what, I guess, last thing would just be, what would you say to someone who's thinking about getting the book? Why should someone get your book? Someone should get my book if they really, really love Jesus 
but they're tired of pretending like it doesn't hurt. Mm. They're tired of pretending like life doesn't hurt. Um, We don't always do lament uh, very well in the church. We don't always talk about what hurts very well. So I say that I wrote my book for people who love Jesus, but are no longer willing to lie about what hurts. So if that might be you, then this book might be something you need to read. I think that's me. I think I need to read it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for just like sharing your heart with me and just your vision and your book and all of this stuff. I think it's really good to have an honest conversation, especially about depression and just the stuff that we face in that way. Um, And yeah, I just thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I'm so glad you joined me again this week on Worth Your Time. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review. Otherwise, I will see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.